Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care so champagne sharks how's everyone doing uh so we have with us uh two guests i did their show before the election, I was I was not sure how to pronounce it correctly. Media Indigena, am I perfect. pronouncing it? Okay, perfect. perfect. So it's uh, Kim Talbear and Rick Harp. So um, let's start with uh, Kim. Uh, introduce yourself. What people need to know about you and where they can find you. Uh, hi, um, I'm Kim Talbear. I am an associate professor at the um, University of Alberta in the Faculty of Native Studies. But I am from the U.S. originally. I grew up in U.S. occupied Dakota homelands, what is now known as. South Dakota and Minnesota, and I'm a citizen of the Sisseton Wapitan Oyate. My name is Rick Harp, Harp like the logger, and uh, or the instrument. And I've been in uh, broadcast journalism for over two decades. And uh, I'm based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm the host producer of Media Indigena, which is uh, a more or less weekly uh, Indigenous current affairs podcast, much like Champagne Sharks. We talk about events of the day, issues of the day through an Indigenous lens. Yours sounds so much more official, though. Like when you say it side by side, like uh, <laughs> media indigenous and then champagne charts. Like <laughs> just, uh, I feel like it sounds like way more, way more official. But you, you want to something crazy? I didn't even, I never thought of until I was reading uh, the article that you wrote, Kim, uh -huh. and you said that you were of the Dakota um, people. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me, even though I heard of the Dakota. Um, people and language. I apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation. North and South Dakota, the states, it never occurred to me that the states are named <laughs> after the people. Yeah, well, it was originally Dakota Territory, and then they both became states at the end of the 20th century and split into North and South Dakota. Yeah. Yeah, it never it never occurred to me that it was the same the Dakota. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, even though even though I had heard of both, I just never right put made it the conscious yeah made the conscious connection. Yeah, yeah. I always find it so strange how settlers treat a people really bad, but still name things after them. You do that a lot in Canada too. Like it's, uh -huh. it's yeah. just like the weirdest thing. Yeah, no, somebody just sent me a. Well, well, it's some kind of a way to uh, have their the cake Muskogee, and eat it too. And they're always naming stuff. You know, they have all this war crap, right? Named after tribes. I'm like, you genocided us, and you're going to name shit after us. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so, so weird. So weird to me. Yeah, it's totally common. 
<laughs> I think that's probably the reason why I didn't make the mental connection because, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, like, why would they name it after that based on how so they treated the people? But It's a form of taking ownership of our history and us, right? Yeah. Which which uh, I think is a perfect segue into your article, uh, Caretaking Relations, Not American Dreaming. And um, I know you can't stay for the whole thing, but I thought it might make a good framing um, for the show. And then when you have to leave, uh, Rick and I can continue in the same vein. But if you don't mind just letting people know what this article is, about and what made you write it to in, in the first place? Um, I'm going to open up the journal issue that it's in. Um, I mean, I, the things in this article I've been thinking about, you know, my whole life and, and just in the last five years have really kind of solidified into an argument. Um, but the it was in a special uh, issue of an American studies journal called CALFU, K-A-L-F-O-U. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. I guess it's a journal of uh, ethnic studies. Um, and there was a special issue that was edited um, I think it was by George Lipsitz, who's a black scholar. I think he's out in California now. And the book was really uh, looking at... Um uh, Aileen Morton Robinson's book, The White Possessive, uh, the, or the journal issue was looking at that. And Aileen Morton Robinson is an Aboriginal scholar from Australia and wrote this book, The White Possessive, which uh, looks at sort of white possession of land and identities and uh, histories. But she's prominently featuring in that uh, book the scholarship of Cheryl Harris, who wrote um, a very important Harvard Law Review article published in 1993 called Whiteness is Property. And Cheryl Harris is one of the sort of really um, central critical race scholars. Uh, and so uh, Aileen's really putting Indigenous studies into conversation with Black studies here around the white possessive. And so I was asked to write an article that would cite Aileen's book, and I do teach it and engage with it, uh, in this special journal article where different scholars are, are uh, writing back and talking about the white possessive in the context of Indigenous people. So that's how the article came about. Yeah, so I've heard of the original um, George Lip, uh, Lip- Lipset's <laughs> book, yeah. which is The Possessive Investment in mm-hmm. Whiteness. That's right. 19- 1998. And then uh, Aileen Morton Robinson's book is The White Possessive, Progressive Property, Power, and Indigenous Sovereignty. And that came out in 2015. And you're saying that that book drew heavily from um, George Lipset's book, as well as from another book. I'm or sorry, another article, an article by Dino Cheryl Harris. Okay, Dino Cheryl Harris. Yeah, I'm yeah, just saying yeah. all this stuff. So if people want to look into, yeah. into it, um, they can. Yeah, so. So yeah, it's it kind of like about. Indigenous Sovereignty Scholarship and black studies scholarship, white um, critical race theory, and kind of in conversation, right? Which we are, I mean, many of us who do race and indigenous studies are very much in conversation with critical race theory and with black people's critiques and analyses of white supremacy and the history of the United States. So one thing, I'll be honest, I did not fully, fully understand everything in the article. I actually think I'm going to have to go deeper into some of it because you talk about the caretaking relations, humanity versus Mm non-humanity and, and, uh, living versus, versus non-living and how all these dichotomies help, help frame the construct of being indigenous in the white imagination. Uh huh. Well, they, it helps those, those uh, dichotomies, right? Human, animal, alive, not alive, uh, those are fundamental to the way that white supremacy, I use the word deanimates, right? But makes less human, makes less alive 
all other kinds of beings that they seek control over, whether they're talking, whether we're talking about other peoples, black people, indigenous people, whether we're talking about non-human animals, which I refer to as relatives and relations, you know, uh, whether we're talking about, I mean, they do it to their own women and children too, right? They're scholars, of course, who look at the way that, um, you know, all kinds of different human beings get, get deanimated um, in order to be controlled by the white heterosexual, <laughs> white heteronormative white supremacist state. So that's what I'm getting at. I'm kind of teasing out what some of those different binaries are um, in that. Uh, so I don't know if there was a question beyond that. But that's where the non-human comes in. I mean, think about it, right? You know, whenever uh, settler culture wants to denigrate somebody, they call them animals. Why are we denigrating animals? We're animals too, and they're our relatives, you know, so we have to think about that when we're doing, I don't call cop, cops pigs anymore. I'm not going to insult pigs. Pigs are decent mm-hmm. animals. You know, I'm going to, if I'm going to insult a cop, I got to think of a better, <laughs> a better critique than that. Right. <laughs> yeah. it's a great way to put it. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of what I'm getting at. So I like this line where you said, um, dreaming even in inclusive and multicultural tones of developing an ideal settler state implicitly supports the elimination of indigenous peoples from this place. And I thought that was a great line. And if you don't mind expanding on, on that. Um, can you tell me what page I was on? Oh, it's like the very first paragraph. Oh, like okay. It's the last <laughs> sentence in the first paragraph. Oh, okay. Um, I think yeah. it pretty, basically sets the stage for the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I, I just don't believe you can redeem... Uh, the U.S. genocidal state is fundamentally about the dispossession of indigenous peoples from their from our land, and the best way to do that was to kill us, whether you physically kill us or eliminate us statistically, or you know by imposing other conditions of life that are incompatible with life and thriving. Um, and it's also built on slavery, on the enslavement of other humans, you know, and the torture of them. I just, how do you? That's the foundations of the nation state. Uh, you know, we I and I think this sort of um, I was having a conversation on Twitter today with, you know, I really don't I, I also resent when liberals take up the term patriot. Really, is that what you want to be a patriot to a murderous genocidal nation state? Or do you want to be a better relative to your other human and non-human relatives? Do you want to be a better planetary inhabitant? You know, and I think and I often say this being a patriot is to be automatically a bad planetary citizen. So yeah. I, I don't think we should be putting our allegiance towards uh, that construct of that. No, I'm not, you know, I understand I used to be a planner. There's a reason I'm not a, a planner anymore. I don't really necessarily think we can plan our way out of these kinds of really oppressive uh, several hundred year old institutions. But I do think changing the narrative is really important. I think we will not have the imagination to try to make all the kinds of structural changes we'll need to tweak and make unless we get a new guiding narrative. And I don't think that guiding narrative can be a redemption of the genocidal settler state. I think we need something different than that. And that's really what I'm trying to get at in this article. I want us to see, and this is a core kind of Dakota worldview value. You know, we talk about our relatives and they're not always human and they're not always close biological relatives. And I don't think I go into it in this article, but I go into it in other articles where my um, my ancestor, uh, Chief Little Crow Teoyate Duta was, it was, it's really weird to read Dakota history back in the mid 19th century. He was uh, in, in some of the treaty history as well, um, histories between tribes and, and uh, settlers, settler governments. They would sometimes, um, our ancestors would sometimes try to make newcomers kin. And I never really understood that. But of course, I had hindsight. I knew what was coming, right? But I see now what they were doing. Um, it's different to, to welcome people in and try to make them kin. Uh, that's different than coming in and settling and wiping out all of the forms of governance and culture and the languages that were there and imposing your own stuff. You know, my ancestors were pretty good quite often at trying to accommodate newcomers, but it doesn't mean they wanted them to wipe out our language 
languages, steal our children, wipe out our form of government governance and take all our land. You know, you can make kin without doing all of that. Um, and I'm trying to remind people of that, right? I think there's this like zero sum game that happens in the mind of a lot of US people. Uh, and, and this happens in Canada too. Well, if we give it all back, what does that mean? We all have to leave. Uh, why would you think that? You think that we're going to do to all of you what you did to us? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just tell, telling on themselves, right? So I'm trying to get people to, I don't know, think a little bit differently in this. And uh, Rick, of course, you could hop in at any uh time if you ever want to expand on anything well, that uh, Kim said, even though it's Kim's article. <laughs> well, you know, what, what leapt out at me is is the way Kim, I mean, a, a lot of what's involved in in, in, in uh, explicit in this article, caretaking relations, not American dreaming, are themes that uh, Kim will return to often in, in media indigena and will sort of apply them to different situations. And, you know, we could even uh, apply them to the, the so-called capital coup or, or whatever we're calling what happened at the Capitol uh, <laughs> the other day. To me, she, I think she really uh, has helped cement in my mind the, the counterposition, the, the, the counterposing of ownership versus kinship, ownership versus relationship. And, and I'm starting to wonder if, you know, in other words, property, seeing the world primarily through the lens of property and treating it as such, including human and non-human. And, and we take it for granted, you know, that, that, that idea that property, it, it almost seems benign. Do you know what I mean? It all, it's almost a yeah. default when in fact, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of statement of how you see and, and act upon the world including other people. Yeah, I mean, that's why we draw on Cheryl Harris too, right? And her whiteness is property. And her argument is that whiteness became such a valuable form of property. I mean, it gets defended as property, right? And and white people get really strict about who has access to the privileges of whiteness because it actually materially benefits them. So Something interesting about uh, people who argue along those veins, like, uh, like Cheryl Harris, David Rodinger talks a lot about it. I know George Lipsitz does. There's someone else who's not coming to me, but who also talks about um, the idea of, of of whiteness as a as a valued possession in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Is it puts you at odds with um, not only right wingers who have a very um, big investment in downplaying racism in general, but it even ends up a lot of times putting you up against your ostensible uh, allies too. Because some people on the left want very much to believe that. Um, there are colorblind or raceblind solutions uh, that deal with class that can um, mitigate all this stuff. So when you put into the idea that, that there's a possessive investment in in whiteness that you know some people will value even more than they value the socioeconomic status, like this this line of inquiry puts you at odds with um, a lot of people on both the so-called right and left. Yeah, totally. Most of my trolls on Twitter are, li- are liberals. Mm. You know, it's the, I block the there right. There's a line right here, people. and this is one something that I think I got, but I would like you to expand, is uh, it's the end of this line where you're talking about whether the settler state wants to farm, build a mine, or a city, pump oil, or cordon off a national park. The quote-unquote resources used to build these nation-states include the lands, waters, other than human beings with whom indigenous people are co-constituted. And I was curious if you could explain what it means for indigenous people to be uh, quote-unquote co-constituted with lands, water, and other than human beings. Oh yeah, just the idea that we emerged as peoples, capital P, in relationship with particular landscapes and water bodies and, uh, you know, the 
the relatives that were the non-human relatives that were in those places. So in, um, I mean, we have many different ways of talking about an indigenous people or in a U.S. Uh, language, a tribe, which often um, get defined. Most people, I think, in the popular kind of uh, audience will understand a tribe as a biologically related group, right? We There's too, a lot of conversation about ancestry and quote-unquote blood quantum and all that, or we might understand them as a political group. So tribal attorneys and legal thinkers are always saying, no, we're not simply a race or a, or a cultural group. We're also uh, a political entity with governance authorities. But beyond that as well is this notion of being a people who emerged in relationship to a particular place. Thus, we're very invested in, uh, for example, protecting uh, sacred landscapes, protecting historic homelands, having access to those places. I mean, you need to go to particular places to do certain ceremonies or you have a you have your your dead are buried there you know your ancestors are there we can't simply just move around and leave our homelands or we lose a core part of what it is to be a people from that place right so land matters very much um we and that's because the humans are not separate from the land and the place right um so, and, and this is why to go back to some of our creation stories or our origin stories, you know, scientists might dismiss us as saying, oh, these people think they emerge from a hole in the ground or something or from this cave. But what they're missing is that these stories root us in these places that deeply form to our people's word. Landscape informs the way that indigenous languages developed and contained in different languages of the world are the worldviews of the people who speak those languages. So the land is really central to us understanding the universe we live in. It's very shapes, right? The thing that it produces. Um, it feeds, it, it sustains us. The particular resources there sustain us. Our cultural practices developed an intimate relation with the particular resources in those places. So that's what we mean when we say we are, we are place-based peoples. We're not simply a people that can just move around and maintain our peoplehood in any kind of robust way. I mean, we do move as individuals, but we've got to have some kind of locus for the people, right, as a collective. As opposed to some people that are be defined as being nomadic, I suppose. Well, I mean, you can I think a lot of indigenous peoples did move around, but they also often would migrate back through different places at different times of the year, right? Sometimes because they were following their, uh, their bison relatives. Or we did a show on Media Indigenous the other day about salmon relatives, right, for uh, indigenous people in uh, what's now the west coast of Canada and the U.S., so you propose an explicitly spatial narrative of what you call caretaking relations as opposed to the binaries of life versus not life and humans versus nature and other Eurocentric hierarchies of life. And I was curious if you could um, describe what's meant by your construct of caretaking relations. Um, can you tell me what page I was on? Oh, page 25. <laughs> oh, 25. Okay. I mean, I think I was talking about that a little bit, right? When I'm talking about um, a, a web of relations. Um, okay. Oh, so I, here's what I said too. Yeah, I, ex I propose a spatial narrative of caretaking relations, human and other than human, as an alternative to the temporally progressive settler colonial American dreaming. Yeah, that's ever co-constituted with deadly hierarchies life. So what I'm getting at there, and I think I do in other parts of the article, I'm also really against this notion of inevitable progress. And progress in the way that we think about it in the U.S. settler colonial imagination is really tied to time, temporality. Uh, you know, and we see this like with the Dems. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. Wait for the next election. It's going to get better later, you know. Uh, and and what that allows people to do is then, I think, ignore the bombing, the killing, uh, the police brutality, or say, well, it'll get better eventually. You know, don't don't ask for too much change now. I'm kind of getting at that kind of stuff. If we think about ourselves in an, in an ever-changing present and always in a web of relations, what we do in this very second affects another being somewhere else on that web. And we've got to take account now, not just be waiting for the future, uh, for the progress that never comes. So I'm actually really pushing back against progressive time as well in the things I'm writing now. I think it lets us lets us off the hook for doing I, what we need to do now. And, and I guess, Kim, I mean, closely aligned with that is the whole frontier thesis, right? That that came out in the 1800s, that the United States, this exceptional state, is, it proved itself against this notion of this, this uh, never-ending frontier, which, of course, Indians were on the other side of... <laughs> Hmm. Would you say? I mean, um, it's how's that relating to time? Well, because you were talking about you know this notion of inexorable progress, right? Yeah. The United States mm-hmm. is always progressing, progressing, getting better and better and better. And in some ways, I mean, it, it, it. I think it works well with with talking about how the United States defined itself as kind of a frontier state, always mm-hmm. pushing against, pushing for, pushing forward, and uh, you know, manifest destiny and, and uh-huh. those kinds of concepts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you guys going to something well you go into something uh in the next part of the article that is one of the things that we want to talk about and expand on um even before i read this article so i i think this would be a great chance for both of you to um chime in is when i appeared on your show you talked uh, in passing about the differences between indigenous community indigenous politics in the u.s versus in canada and since that wasn't really the main topic we kind of uh tabled it to go into later but mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact that it's discussed in this article and we wanted to talk about it before i think this is a great uh, time to uh follow through on that because because you do talk about the advantages and disadvantages or differences you know between being indigenous in america versus being indigenous here and you bring in factors like that there's relatively more of you versus black people in Canada than there, as opposed to in America, where if I read it correctly, there's less indigenous people and a higher proportion of black people. So in some ways, um, people care about indigenous issues more in Canada, but in other ways, there's um, some counterintuitive um, drawbacks to the situation. And I found it pretty fascinating if you guys wanted to yeah. expand on that at all. Well, I think in, in sheer numbers, because the U.S. has about, what is it, Rick, 10 times the population of Canada? Yeah. Yeah. So in sheer numbers, I don't think there's there's definitely not more Indigenous people in Canada than in the United States. It's just that proportionally, we're a mm-hmm. bigger proportion of overall numbers up here, which is... Y- y- yeah, you're right. I didn't, I didn't phrase it correctly. Yeah, right. no, that's okay. It's, yeah, it's, uh, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize kind of how small Canada is in terms of population because it's such a large landmass. Um, but yeah, so I think it, it that's what I'm trying to say. I think it matters in terms of national visibility. But I see a lot more similarities between, say, South Dakota, where I grew up, and uh, the prairie provinces of Canada. So Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Uh, it's very similar here to where I grew up. It's There's a very visible Indigenous people, very explicit, violent, anti-Indigenous racism. But like when I moved from South Dakota to, I went to university out in Boston and Cambridge, like... It's all that implicit kind of anti-Indigenous racism, like, oh, my great-great-grandmother was Cherokee, and you <laughs> people are so spiritual, and it's cool. And I was like, what? Like, 
it's not anti-native violence anymore, police profiling. It's all this new agey weirdness thinking you're cool, which at first was a relief because it's a relief not to just be profiled by the police and have in your face anti-native violence, you know, kind of risking that. But after a while, it gets really exhausting and demoralizing to have people think you're just an artifact of a bygone era and all the Indians mm-hmm. were killed in the 19th century, which I actually got told by a cop in Cambridge when they stopped me once, you know, so, oh, um, wow. yeah, so that's more like the coasts in the U.S., right? And um, so I actually, so that's kind of what I'm talking about in here. I'm not saying that Canada is less racist than the United States. You could argue that on a national scale, maybe, and I'd like to hear from other Indigenous people up here, that Canada's more explicitly anti-Native. But I'm not saying that one country's worse than the other. I think the balance of explicit versus implicit anti-Indigenous racism is different. And you could probably say say the same about anti-Black racism, too. I think uh, I've I've, uh, know Black scholars and thinkers up here who are really pushed back against that idea that the U.S. is more anti-Black than Canada. They don't agree with that at all. Um, it just might look different sometimes and in different places, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the concept I've sort of fallen back on when comparing different places within Canada and comparing across the, the U.S.-Canada border is the concept of a footprint. And, you know, even in, as I say, even in Canada, um, you can have fairly significant Indigenous populations uh, in, in different cities. One has a bigger footprint, and I measure that in terms of you know political influence, in terms of cultural influence, in terms of visibility. But at the same time, as I think I may have mentioned when we brought it up on Media Indigena, I mean, I think there's a certain circulation of ideas, circulation of, of tactics that happens, like Standing Rock, uh, which happened in 2016, I believe. There were a lot of Canadian, uh, quote-unquote, Indigenous people who had come up to be part of that that big compound where a lot of people were, were or encampment where people were were parked for, for qu- quite a few weeks, if not months. So I, 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 the use of social media, I think, is something that's, that's, you know, basically people have learned from one another. And there's been this kind of implicit or uh, unintentional exchange of, of tactics and, and uh, techniques. So, but uh, at the same time, I mean, the, 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 the standard narrative seems to be that the, the United States was willing to pour a lot more money uh, uh, into violence, uh, like military violence against indigenous uh, peoples uh, than than Canada was. But I mean, there's different kinds of violence. At the end of the day, indigenous peoples were were dislocated, relocated on both sides of the border in in a way that the outcome was largely the same, driven by the same sort of Mm Anglo-American desire to, if not erase, uh, indigenous peoples, absorb them. But, But generally speaking, marginalize them. And um, I think too, on both sides of the border, the, the, you know, as Kim talked about, you know, we, the nuclear family was not, was an imposed model of, of social relations and indigenous peoples were, you know, broadly speaking, more organized along kinship relations and networks. And so land was held in common. And, and I think that was definitely incompatible with, with the uh, desires uh, and needs of, of settler colonial capitalism, which wanted to uh, disintegrate our, our 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 conceptions of of land tenure and and governance and and, and family forms. 
Yeah, I mean, both nation states incarcerated children in residential or boarding schools, forced uh, conversion to Christianity. They now both have really uh, high rates of indigenous children in state care in the states and provinces where there are a lot of indigenous people, which is another form, still a contemporary form of stealing our children and disrupting our family relations. Yeah. So, something I find interesting, uh, someone sent me this article recently about, and I don't even know what the right term to use anymore is, I guess the indigenous of... Australia, but um, they weren't calling themselves uh, Aborigine anymore. So I, I didn't actually even realize the group was talking about until I did some research, but it was about some event or parade or some kind of cultural event. And it was called um, First Nations of, mm-hmm. you know, First Nations. So I'm like, oh, First Nations. And to, from what I knew, that's what the indigenous people were called in Canada, or at least um one one collection of them and i was reading i said wait a minute this is about australia and i was like wait so is this canadian indigenous people who relocated to australia or something (laughs) and then i and then i found out that now they and you guys i'm sure know more about this than me which is why i'm actually asking you bringing it up is um that aborigine according to some people has become a um bad word or a i guess a, a settler word or something and that now and i don't know if it's because they feel a type of kinship to you know indigenous people in north america but uh, they've started calling themselves uh, first nation and using some of the language and and scholarship of um north american indigenous um scholarship to characterize and describe their own their own plight against their own settlers and i was wondering if you guys knew much about that if you could um fill me in fill me in on that and if that's kind of part of a growing trend where like indigenous people across the world are kind of forming their own kind of conversation and um diaspora so to speak well i I, i'll just say quickly that i think there was a conscious effort beginning around the 70s to internationalize the cause and and the status of indigenous peoples because i mean it's about self-determination right self-determining peoples so they should have a place on the world stage as opposed to being a dependent domestic status within within a settler colonial state in other words like a junior uh, level of government and and so i think that was strongly felt on both sides of the border and yeah i, I noticed that too I, I don't think that was uh uh something that didn't happen until recently okay. that that uh, indigenous peoples in australia started to uh, use the term first nations i i think they liked the feel of it i think the word <laughs> aborigine aboriginal which was in use in canada for a while too uh it, it used to be indian used, then went to native then it went to aboriginal and now it's indigenous and i mean i think indigenous is used in Canada again for that same you know we have the status of of peoples and 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 nationhood as some describe it and and so should be seen as such not as a a, a, a creature of, of of the nation state uh, that originated in settler colonialism yeah I just gave uh, um, my first lecture of the term in my uh, undergrad class and I the first thing I started out with was reminding people that terminology right is always uh, p- contextual. Um, it changes over time. It changes over space. It matters whether you're an insider or an, or an outsider. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I asked them to think about that, right? Like the term Indian, it's antiquated and we know it's wrong, but insiders still use it. And especially older people use it, but outsiders probably shouldn't use it, you know? And so, um, and if you're not sure 
yeah, ask. But I, I, I was surprised too when I saw that use of First Nation in Australia. I was like, when did you guys start using that term? Um, it, you know, it's very much a term with a legal, particular definition and legal status in Canada. It's not a term we use a lot in the U.S., but sometimes people like to use it because it does sound better. So, and and I should add too, in in Australia, there's a lot of identification with with Black struggles and yeah. Black culture as well because they Makes call sense. themselves Black. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It does. It does make sense. I guess because what I was reading was the Australian publication, and it, and it was a it was a radical publication. They kind of took it that they assumed that you would know what it meant, so it didn't really explain any of it. And it took a while for me to even figure out I was talking about Australia. And then my friend who sent it to me lives in Australia. And he had to explain it all to me, and I was like, "Yeah, if you didn't explain it to me, it's going to take me a while." Then I had to start googling, and that's when I found out about this kind of uh, movement. Like it didn't happen overnight, like what Rick said. You know, uh, Rick is right that. It seemed to have started in the 70s, but it seems to have gained uh, steam uh, more mm. more recently. So it's not it's not new as a concept, but it's probably um, new in terms of the level of a, of adoption of yeah. it. It seems yeah. like oh. it's been pretty normalized. But um, what I found interesting about that was that um, it makes me wonder if that opens up the idea of indigenous struggle to some of the same problems that uh, black struggle. And I guess um, Asian Americans face it too, where um, I know one thing a lot of my Asian Americans friends say is that uh, Asian American is a politically useful construct, but in reality, it's kind of artificial and fake in that um, a lot of these Asian people think of themselves in their home countries as different different people. And even here, uh, they're not really raised by their parents, by their immigrant parents, to think of themselves as this giant construct called Asian. But because they kind of realize white people kind of see us as all this giant um, construct <laughs> that we have a kind of shared, shared cause. And with black people, a lot of times, uh, there's a lot of diaspora war stuff popping up where it's coming more common for Caribbean people to fight with African mm. people to fight with, um, you know, black Americans who descend from American slavery with this idea that we're not all the same. We're not, a, we're not a monolith. Like, um, Mm-hmm. The idea of black politics is politically convenient, but you know we have different we have different needs, and and I imagine that the indigenous people in America and as it's becoming more international, you know, with um, the the North American indigenous people now starting to inspire indigenous people um, throughout the world, I have to imagine that there has to be some of that too, where we were all, we were all individual people. Some of us warred with each other. Some of us got along with each other. Mm -hmm. Some of us have our own internal resentments and we have to try to form a cohesive national and now maybe even international politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, what the history of those tensions, um, have been if they if they have been a significant tension. Hmm. I, I, well, Kim, would you say that um, I think <laughs> it's it's not dissimilar to a joke I once made about and and uh, Trevor, maybe there's a corollary uh, for you to get into, but it, it's not dissimilar to the evolution of indigenous arts. There there was a time when to, for an indigenous filmmaker to even get the chance to train as a filmmaker and much less release a feature film that would actually play in mainstream theaters like that would have seemed unthinkable 60 years ago or what have you and there's still this sort of um 
pressure, I think, to love and uh, uh, every every indigenous cultural product should be loved, whether it's a TV show, uh, whether it's a movie, as long as it has a, a native person in it, we should we should champion it. And I sort of joke once, you know, I can't wait to get to the moment where I can say, you know what, that indigenous film by that indigenous person, it wasn't very good. <laughs> and But I can't because I feel this pressure to be a cheerleader. And yeah. I feel similarly, I think internal divisions or internal tensions, right? Um, be it on a class basis, uh, elites versus the, 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 the rest of the group, uh, often which were either, you know, uh, introduced, but uh, sometimes were already present and just sort of intensified in a divide and conquer way by by the settler state. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a real risk, right, in airing your so-called dirty laundry because it can be a way for people to say, see, even they don't agree amongst themselves. You know, never, you know, white people get to be complicated and sophisticated and disagree, uh, but but all us Indians have to agree all the time. Otherwise, we're we're fragmented. So I don't know. That that's my sort of take on it. Is you know, to, to me, it would be a sign of maturity to be able to. Uh, have disagreements over our, our position, and 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 we do, frankly, when it comes to things like the election, which is what brought you onto media indigenous. Trevor was, yeah, you know. What, what's in it for indigenous people to participate in main, mainstream settler elections? And some people are hardcore saying, why would you take part in another country's election? That, that doesn't make sense. We're sovereign. You go in your boat and we'll go in ours kind of thing. So uh, I, I think we're at a point now, enabled by access to, to, to forms of, of distribution and production, media production and distribution, i.e. social media and, and the web. We, we can start to have those conversations and, and, and feel a little less reserved or afraid afraid that, that people are going to use it uh, as a cudgel against us because we don't happen mm-hmm. to agree 100% all the time. I do think, though, that there's a lot of pressure out in Indigenous social media world about what have I seen lately? You know, just like it's not our way <laughs> to critique <laughs> each other. I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, you do a oh, lot so of weird. heckling in my family. <laughs> they're almost doing to themselves what um, white people do as far as kind of creating this kind of noble caricature, like above I wonder, Above you know. conflict. Yeah, because you know? I also know that like, and I do think there's like a real culture of, I mean, I'm going to, um, I'm going to pan nativize here, but I do <laughs> think there is a real culture of teasing in our communities, right? Like, you know, if, if you get teased, it means we like you, <laughs> you know, and you got it, but you got to learn how to take it. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely feel that way. Like one of my favorite things is to, is to heckle white people on social media. And that's part of what I do in my scholarship. But I, I definitely <laughs> feel like I can't heckle other natives all the time, you know, like I'll get accused of lateral violence. <laughs> oh, yeah. The word violence has uh, really been in vogue uh, lately. You know, I was thinking of a concrete example uh, to show what I was talking about is, for example, there's been this kind of thing where you have to cheerlead everything uh, black. And lately, I think social media has given a lot of alternative voices a chance to talk in a, in a way that they couldn't before when everything was more gatekept. Uh, where now you have the conflict of black Americans saying we're tired of all these um, African and Caribbean descended actors from England. That's right. Getting to play all the American icons like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and stuff like that. And they're saying that we're tired of this flat blackness or this flat mm-hmm. just construct of blackness where we're all interchangeable and we actually want to highlight the differences. We don't always get along. Mm-hmm. There are some types of black people who have historic conflicts with other types of black people. We don't have to pretend. And I guess the same thing happens with um, Asian people where when I uh, hear some Asian people talk amongst themselves, they'll be complaining that 
to them, uh, I've heard some of them say that they view Japanese people as the imperialist of Asia and they don't <laughs> really huh. feel cool being here pretending to be equally yeah. um, oppressed because they have grudges from their families back. I just find that kind of interesting. I was wondering if there's like that ever happens where it's like, don't air the dirty laundry of how uh, this group doesn't like that group. We have, to pre- we have to present a united front, whereas some people are like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't like this. Uh, yeah. This nation. <laughs> I, think it, yeah. I think in like all native circles, you know, yeah, we definitely talk. I mean, I um, I worked in Denver at one point when the organization I was in was all Lakota people and Navajo, except for me, pretty much, or a couple of Oklahoma Indians. But see, I say Indian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I rem- it was definitely weird to hang out with it. But it's like my first time hanging out with a bunch of Navajos. Like they were so in my, I'm going to generalize, they were so much more uh, they were like quieter and more proper. Like their culture just seemed really different than ours as a Sioux, quote unquote, right? Um, and so we do talk about those internal differences and we make fun of each other. And, you know, I, uh, yeah, totally. And I'll talk about Oklahoma Indians because they've got a very different history there than we do on the Upper Plains. And um, But I do think, yeah, maybe uh, we shy away from doing that more publicly. First of all, because people won't get what we're talking about or we feel like our critiques might play into non-Indigenous people's anti-Indigenous stuff. I'm sure black people maybe argue about that too. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you, you you anticipated a point I was going to try and bring up, which is just, you know, a lot of uh, content that's created with indigenous involvement. Uh, I guess the dividing line is whether or not it's it's a majority non-indigenous audience, uh, and and whether or not something is legible to settler mm-hmm. people. And you know, some settler, uh, you know, uh, audience members like being challenged, like something that's different. Others, they'll just see it as alien and just you know step away or turn it off or wh- wh- go on to Twitter or whatever. And and that to me too is is a pressure because it. Uh, I guess I'm slipping back into the into the content creation, but I think there's a lot of overlap too. I mean, if if we if we go on television in the news to talk about why we're participating in a blockade or why we're agitating politically, if, if we talk about it in our own terms and still using English, never mind an indigenous language, um, you, you can often just be get kind of these dumb blank looks, or you open yourself up to to ridicule that's ignorant of of the actual context uh, that that indigenous people are coming from. And and so I mean that was another thing I, I felt that the, the theme that was really hammered home in your piece, Kim, was just that, you know, for Americans, uh, not non that is to say white Americans, settler colonialism settler colonialism is the air they breathe. Canadians too. Yeah, it's right? a done it's a done deal. Yeah. <laughs> Move on. Let's <laughs> Yeah, it's the I'm default position. The part. Oh, sorry, were you say something? Oh, it's just that's that's the default position that that never has. It's it's the norm, the normative position, and thus never has to be uh, examined because to examine it would be again, you know, like to ask a a, a fish to to think about water. <laughs> and and you know, um, this is part of the article about the settler state cannot be decolonized, and we talked about that. Um, a little bit earlier and it's a good chance to go deeper into it but when i was reading this section i was thinking about the deb halland lady that they've been talking about lately is that mm-hmm. is that her name secretary yeah, of the interior now yeah. right yeah. yes yes she got elected to the the cabinet a lot of people were talking they were using multiple examples not just her but they were like this was even more diverse than obama's um cabinet like obama was a nice figurehead of diversity but his cabinet was still largely like you know white and male but they were saying uh 
Biden. It's really diverse. And I was like, what does she believe? I don't I have no idea what she believes. Like, you know, but it was interesting. No one, the people were talking to me. Not only did they not know what she believed, but it didn't even occur to them to ask, you know? So I was kind of curious, like, you know, what, how is she, um, I guess, politically indigenous? How is she <laughs> politically um, advancing anything that is in indigenous in terms of its um, positive impact? And I was wondering if you guys knew anything about her yourselves or if you just had similar conversations or, or discussions mm-hmm. about maybe other similar people, like how you feel about this idea about, because I felt like, her name and that recent conversation, because I only had it yesterday, popped in mind in the settler state cannot be um, decolonized section. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't talked about Deb Howland's appointment on Media Indigenous, have we yet, Rick? No, I mean... Yeah. Was she already on your radar? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm Well, yeah, she yeah. got on my radar because, uh, well, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm so integrated in Indian country. I mean, I knew, you know, there was everybody on, you know, Facebook is where all the natives are, right? Like there's, a, especially the old people, like it's really where you've keep in touch with your friends and family from home. And so everybody was, many, many people were thrilled when she, uh, you know, got elected to Congress. Um, uh, I know people who know her. Um, and, but then, so, okay, there was that, but, you know, I Dem exited in 2016 anyway, so I don't rah-rah anything anymore about the Dems. But um, then I, she got on my radar again, because in, uh, with all of, over all of the Elizabeth Warren stuff, because I wrote a book on the politics of DNA research on Native people, and I have a chapter on genetic ancestry testing. I did a lot of media calls from 2012, when she was first running for Senate in Massachusetts, to when she first did her DNA test, and when that was released in October 2018. Um, So I've done media for a long time on her her, uh, Cherokee claims. And Halland was defending her. And what was really interesting to me was you could both, um, uh, Halland could have both said this, this, and this policy work by Warren or this position is might be good for Indian country. And yet still what she's doing is cultural appropriation. And 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 we're hoping to talk with her on that and educate her about that. Because Deb Halland is anti-mascot. Well, the football team mascots are a very similar type of appropriation to pretendianism. They have very similar histories uh, in terms of why the white supremacist state does this. Um, and they're part of the same broader script of cultural appropriation. So I'm like, how can you be anti-mascot and be all acting like our critiques of Elizabeth Warren are not a problem? I mean, there was all these DC Indians who were saying, this is not an issue. We have more important things to worry about. I'm like, well, then you guys don't even know really the core reason why you're anti-mascot if you can't see the similarities. So um, I, but I, I have to say, because I um, am so, you know, disgusted by and have no hope in the Dems anymore after growing up in that party, I really haven't followed her particular policy stuff. Rick might know that better than me. Uh, you know, I do not. And, 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 and I share Trevor's curiosity as to why coverage of why she would be so awesome didn't go super deep uh, into, well, what does that mean? What kind of policies will she be advocating for? And it's interesting you bring up Elizabeth Warren because uh, it reminded me that, in fact, um, Deb Haaland uh, was one of three presidential campaign chairs for Warren, which, of course, sets up the same kind of dynamic. I mean, she was on Team Warren, in effect, and now she's on Team Biden. And when you're part of a team, you're supposed to root for the team. You're, you're supposed to work for the team. You're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to be a team player. And so that, that's whether you're indigenous or not. I don't know how you overcome the pressures of, of that 
requirement. I mean, that's that's politics. That's that's all I really have to say about that. That's why I kind of laughed earlier when you were asking because I'm just like, I don't know. I don't. I we'll have to wait and see. And the honeymoon period will probably end pretty quick in Canada. We had uh, uh, an Indigenous woman, Jody Wilson-Raybould, become the Minister of Justice, uh, w- you know, the Attorney General for, or Solicitor General, both. Okay, sorry about that. I should know more about uh, settler colonial parliamentary forms. My apologies. But in any case, it was seen as historic. And things didn't necessarily advance wildly or dramatically for the interests of Indigenous peoples. So it, it, I think you should judge people by results, not by, you know, seat at the table, representation politics. And, and, and I think it remains, to be fair, I guess it remains to be seen what but, the case but will be. at the very least, she doesn't have, like, horrible reputation. I mean, like, she... Depends who I you mean, talk to. Oh, okay. Gotcha. There, there, there is one campaign on Twitter. Can we call it a, a campaign, uh, uh, Kim, concerning the Cherokee Freedmen? Oh, and- yeah. How, how extensive is that? Okay, so I uh, messaged, uh, DM'd a Cherokee Freedmen a grad student that I know, really brilliant young person, And but I just can't get a handle on everything. Um, Neither can I. It's- yeah. So I think, yeah, she. so there are, there are Freedmen critics of her because there was uh, a particular bill that some Freedmen uh, legislation was kind of bundled up with that, and she was seen as not defending their interests. And my question was, because it was a housing bill, an Indian country housing bill or something, right? And I was like, did the Friedman stuff get bundled up with some other legislation that mm. it had, you know, I had nothing to do with, I couldn't tell. So I was trying to get a handle on that. But uh, yeah, there's some rumblings among Friedman, particularly about her non, and then their allies, right, about her non-support of them. Are, are you familiar with this situation, Trevor? Oh, no, no, not at all. I, it, 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 it could take probably two hours yeah. <laughs> onto itself and, and still need more time. So Kim may or may not be able to... Oh, but do you know what the Freedmen are? Give us, the, give us the 101 on it. Uh, oh, no, no, not at all. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, so the, they call them the, there's five civilized tribes. This is antiquated legal language in, in Oklahoma. And these were the tribes, I think all of them were slaveholding tribes. Um, and so there are freedmen. Uh, so those tribes have, and this is not my area of expertise, I've done some reading. Those tribes have both um, citizens by blood, quote unquote, and citizens who were naturalized, basically enslaved people held by these these tribes, these five tribes got citizenship, right? Um, oh, the, I think I heard the, about yeah. this. I think on Henry Lewis Gates show, yeah. um, he talked to Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, uh, his family uh, came from this tradition that you're talking uh-huh. about. I just didn't know that they were called uh, Freedmen, but yeah. Freedmen, yeah. But, and Freedmen but, but please, please continue. Have you heard of Marilyn Van, B-A-N-N? She's a big Freedman uh, descendant uh, activist and advocate. Anyway, um, yeah, if people are interested, they have a webpage. It's Descendants of Freedmen of the Five Civilized Tribes Association. Uh, and it's Freedmen, the number five tribes.com. And uh, they've got information on there. So, yeah, they, um, you know, they've really struggled with being disenfranchised as voting citizens. For, uh, like the Cherokee Nation is the most prominent case, I think, that's come up in the news. Uh, and so, of course, there's a history of, of white supremacy there and anti-blackness. And there's also all this really convoluted Indian law that's also part of. Uh, uh, but I think after um, back in the mid two mid 2000s uh eventually the cherokee supreme court ruled in their favor uh, i'm not sure where it is now but yeah so uh but they're still you know they they still i think are uh actively um kind of culturally disenfranchised even but i don't think they're actually eligible for citizenship in all of those tribes either now so it's kind of an ongoing problem uh in those tribes um yeah so 
Oh, very very interesting. It it um, really is. Yeah, it's a good homepage or good webpage to go to for some basic links. Yeah, yeah, and and Don and Don uh, Chadel uh, episode of that Henry Louis Gates show is a nice little primer um, into it. But I'm looking at the Marilyn Van um, site, and mm-hmm. it goes much it goes much much deeper. Yeah. But so I'm like, sorry, go on. You go oh, so I was just going to say that's the only critique so far I've heard with any kind of apparent momentum on Twitter. So take that for what it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like the section that you have here. Um, as George Lipsis explains, expounding on Shandon Reddy's idea of, quote, freedom with the violence, end quote. And this is the section that made me think about the recent uh, celebration I saw around Deb Howland. Uh, it says, aggrieved groups are encouraged to seek inclusion and equality rather than justice. Desires for self-determination and dignity become channeled by the power structure and through demands for roles inside oppressive systems mm-hmm. rather than for changing those systems themselves. Individuals form from aggrieved groups can secure a small measure of inclusion by agreeing to participate in the state's violence against those outside the nation. And then you and then you add, I often think of and sorrowfully lament how many indigenous people, people of color, and other poor people have too few choices to but to don a military uniform and fight US wars of aggression around the world. What I took from Sinclair's words in his motion of pain in his moment of pain was a sense of hopelessness in the structure of the nation state. The conceptual freedom I take from his words sparks me to continue thinking and hoping beyond the irredeemable state. And this was um, the part that I found interesting, but I don't think I fully understood. Uh, the next sentence is losing hope in the state redeeming itself is for me a move toward what Juno Diaz calls quote-unquote radical hope. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on the Juno Diaz radical hope part. Because I feel, I feel the previous part was pretty oh, self, okay. self-explanatory. Interesting. Yeah. So he, he pairs that with this notion of being misaligned with the emotional baseline of any mainstream society. And the emotional baseline of U.S. society, I think, is this kind of liberal dreaming of inevitable progress, of American exceptionalism, of being a moral state. And we just have to constantly work to attain the core essence or promise of the U.S. state, right? Uh, I, I think that's a pack of lies. Uh, so I'm definitely misaligned from that. And he says um, he says that uh, we must be uh, misaligned with the emotional baseline of any mainstream society. Uh, so that's key, I think. If if the mainstream is telling you what's right, that if the masses, you know, are well, I don't know what the masses, but the if the emotional baseline of the U.S. is that, we have to be skeptical of it. But he talks about radical hope in terms of uh, just hope from the bottom, I guess, you know. And I think a lot in my other work about the key theorists for me, the key thinkers for me that really shape the my my view of the world are not academics; they're people in community. So people, the anti-colonial people in my community, although they wouldn't have used words like. Like that, like my own mother, um, like my ancestor, Little Crow, you know, like uh, Vine Deloria Jr., who happened to be an academic. It's, it's, uh, I guess they're not all at the bottom necessarily, but these are not people in power, you know, or most of them weren't necessarily people that have a place in the kind of mainstream power structure. Uh, and uh, I think a lot about theorists and community even today. Some of the most brilliant people, theoretically, that I know of are some of the land and water defenders at Standing Rock and the way that they link caretaking our relations with defense of indigenous treaty rights, the, you know, all the people that were gathering at Standing Rock, there was a lot of intellectual work going on. There are black 
Black Lives Matter, Idle No More was there. There were really, uh, there were some, you know, young, young anarchist people there. There was some really brilliant theorizing about what another kind of world might look like. And so um, I think that's just kind of what he's talking about, right? He talks about coming from uh, the bottom. Uh, and so he says, uh, in one, I don't know if I have this quote out here, in here, but, you know, from the bottom will come um, the wisdom that we need to, you know, create a different world. Anyway, I, th- I don't know if I can't find that quote. Well, you, okay, I think I have it here. He okay. says, I do, I do trust in the collective genius of all the people who have survived these wicked systems. Right. I trust in that. I think from the bottom will the genius come that makes our ability to live with each other possible. I believe that with all my heart. So I think we have to just not think like we, we can't just be the fodder for, for the war. You know, uh, hmm. we have to elevate the theorists in our community. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.